With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. Adam Spinella is in the building. If you're watching on YouTube, this is the first of two podcasts we're going to record Sunday night. Uh, the first one is going to be a news and notes stuff around basketball. We're going to talk about James Harden. We're going to talk about Cooper Flag. We're going to talk a little bit about Flory Badunga. Uh, Adam, have you seen much of Flory? Not a ton, but uh, I've liked what I've seen. Yeah, I'm intrigued by him. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a little bit questionable in why he's like become the unquestioned number one center in that class, but I really like him and think he's a really, really good player. Uh then we're going to ask for questions and answers at the end of it. We're going to keep it super simple on this one because the second episode that will be recorded Sunday and the second episode will go up on the podcast feed. I want to say probably going into Tuesday morning, maybe midway through Tuesday uh, on the podcast feed is going to be an expansion draft episode where Adam has done literally everything imaginable to create a world for us to do an expansion draft from creating spreadsheets to everything for us to do this in the most rule bound, complicated way imaginable. Uh, And I love it. And I'm so excited to do it. So we're going to do that after this episode, please join us for that. That one's going to be super fun. We want it to be interactive. We want it to be fun. We want you guys to yell and complain at us. It'll be great. Um, Okay. Adam. The only thing that happened NBA wise this weekend, I'll be honest, like I was like fairly logged off this weekend. I think I watched, I don't know, like six or seven movies. I went to the movies twice on Friday. uh, And then Saturday we did, uh, we went to a Colombian bar because my cousins, uh, my wife's cousin's partner is Colombian. So we went to a Colombian bar. And went to watch the England Columbia game. But before that was the Australia Sweden game or Australia. Who the fuck did Australia play? Why is my brain breaking France game uh, for the women's world cup? It was one of the most fun, enjoyable experiences I've had uh, out in a long time. It was so great. Uh, And then yesterday, I think I watched four more movies. So uh, it was, it was a beautiful weekend, but in the middle of all of that. Oh, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy H. The ballad of Jim Harden continues, Adam. Uh, James Harden, according to Adrian Wojnarowski over at ESPN, uh, James Harden is essentially not going to be moved before camp is the public position of the Philadelphia 76ers. The exact report is ESPN sources, the 76ers have ended trade talks on James Harden and plan to bring him back to training camp for the start of the season. The Sixers had periodic offseason conversations with the Clippers, Harden's desired destination, but no traction on a deal materialized. 
Sixers and Harden agreed to seek a trade together after Harden picked up his player option for 23-24. But Philly believes it has a championship team with Harden and wants to find a way to make it work with him this season. Harden has been emphatic in wanting a trade, so the Sixers are setting up an uncomfortable situation to start camp. Ultimately, Philadelphia wouldn't make a trade that they believed would compromise their title hopes. After that, Sam Amick from uh, the website I work for, The Athletic, reported essentially that Harden's plans are unchanged. He still does not plan to report to training camp for the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, This is going to get very Ben Simmons-like, potentially, in terms of all of this. And this is going to be a total dumpster fire train wreck in all directions. I'm here for the mess a little bit. I feel generally bad for 76ers fans about all of this because they have now just continued to deal with an absolute mess of any situation imaginable from the Brian Colangelo collar situation to... Uh, Brett Brown running the front office momentarily to all of the terrible front office moves that put them in this situation before Daryl Morey took over to the Ben Simmons mess that was his training camp disaster uh, to the Mark Markel Fultz pick to everything leading to now where James Harden and Daryl Morey are basically going to be in a standoff uh, in terms of fighting to see who has leverage. Adam, Mark and I dove deep on the James Harden trade market and the conclusion that we came to in that podcast, I'll put the link in the YouTube comments uh, for people watching live that want to go back and look at that. I'll put it in the podcast description as well. We came to the conclusion that there are very few actual real suitors on the market for James Harden that makes sense in terms of accomplishing the task that Philly needs to, which is ultimately maintain a championship contender around Joel Embiid. Because you, if you trade James Harden for a trade that does not keep you in the title race, you begin to play with fire on Joel Embiid asking out. Yeah. And that's something that Philadelphia cannot possibly accommodate happening. So at least on their own accord. Mm -hmm. So where does this leave all of this now? Because to me, like I'm not overly surprised by it. I just want to say that I am disappointed. It's come to this. Like it's just a bummer. The whole thing is a bummer, I guess. It very much is Sam. And uh, I think you and I are both generally pro player in some regards and in most regards. And I want, you know, guys to, to get the money that they deserve while also I I think playing in a situation that benefits them. And, you know, we've seen time and time again, like James Harden has kind of moved to different spots and uh, looked for a a spot where maybe the grass is, is going to be greener somewhere else. Uh, What is really striking to me about what's happened over the last few days with Philly kind of shutting down the trade market for him, so to speak, publicly shutting it down for the next couple of months, is that it really is a, an attempt by Maury in the front office to try to reclaim a little bit of that leverage, so to speak, and uh, and see if, if they can play hardball with Harden and, and try to get him to opt in because they've got to have that realization already creeping in that 
they're not going to find exactly what they need to keep a contender this year if they trade James Harden in the next couple of months. But the clock is really ticking on that front office to make the right move because you can't risk alienating Joel Embiid in the next year or so. You need to be able to find a legitimate contender and a way to, if you move off of Harden, get the right assets back to, to keep this team top three in the East. And that's a really hard thing to do. I don't see the market for it right now. I don't either. And that's what makes all of this very difficult for the 76ers. Like, I, look, I listened to the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I, I love Spike and Mike, as people know. I mean, Spike is just done with this. Like, and I, I respect it. Like, he just does not want to see James Harden in a Philadelphia 76ers uniform. I don't blame him. Like, after all of this. The leverage dynamics here, though, are fascinating. Like, undeniably incredibly interesting. Because on one hand, you have the Philadelphia 76ers who have this guy under contract, who have this player who I believe turns 34 this year, who is a legend of basketball. Like, the interesting thing that... I've seen people say, like, I think Andre Iguodala said it recently on a podcast that he was like, I don't know if people that don't go to like youth events understand the influence that James Harden has had on youth basketball. James Harden is an incredibly impactful player on the way basketball is played now, not just at the NBA level and the college levels, but at the youth levels in terms of footwork, in terms of shot creation, in terms of everything. But his NBA legacy, there, there's a difference between, I mean, people are going to yell at me for this, but there is a difference between like your Hooper legacy and like the legacy you leave on basketball and the legacy you leave in the NBA, right? Yeah. And right now, James Harden's legacy in the NBA is not befitting of the talent that he has and the talent that he possessed and what he accomplished on an individual level in the NBA. I think that ultimately that's kind of Daryl Morey's leverage is the hope that James Harden has some desire to not blow up his legacy, basically. Now, the problem with that is that we've seen James Harden do this before, and it has not gone well for teams that have tried this with him. Didn't go well in Brooklyn. Didn't go well in Houston, certainly. If he doesn't want to be there, it's real hard to manage him. I guess that where I'm sitting on this now is I kind of think that Harden still has the leverage. And that's a problem to me league-wide, I guess. Like, yeah, the fact that James Harden does still have one year left on his contract and can essentially hold this organization hostage a little bit is, is something that did not get worked out in this new CBA. And I'm a little bit surprised that owners didn't fight for it. It's not good for the NBA that this is happening, no. I don't think. No. Uh, truly, it's it's not. And you and I, again, like this comes from a place of you and I are always in favor of the players. Yes. Like you, we will always go to bat for these guys yeah. and say they should get paid what they want, what they deserve. That, um, you know, if they feel like they shouldn't play uh, due to injury, if they feel like uh, they're being wronged in some way, 
I'm all for being in favor of the players. I find it hard to be in favor of Harden in this scenario. James Harden agreed to this two-year contract with a player option. He opted in earlier this summer. Right. He could have ended this. It could have been very simple for James Harden. He could have opted out and found a new place to play. He chose not to. He is now going to have to live with that decision. And I get it that there was an agreement that the 76ers would look for a trade that made sense for everybody. I kind of think it was a bit of a miscalculation on the fact of Harden in his team to think that there was a trade out there and to think that Daryl Morey would do anything other than a trade that is in the best interest of the Philadelphia 76ers, not in the best interests of coming to some logical compromise between Harden and the 76ers. So I just can't really get on James Harden's side here, I guess. Like it's hard for me to really go pro player on this to me. Like again, the league stepped in earlier this summer. They said something about what was going on with Damian Lillard. I kind of think the league needs to say something now about this and figure out, okay, how are we going to stop players from holding organizations hostage in this way? I respect what James Harden has done and what he's accomplished in his career, but he made these choices from a contractual standpoint. And I get that the NBA is not like, oh, I signed a contract uh, with the athletic to go right for the athletic. You know, uh, that's an employment contract, right? I get it. It's a little bit different. The power that players hold over their organizations is drastically different than the power that someone like me holds over the athletic, even as somebody that's like relatively successful in his career at this point. Like it's just different. I can't get there on Harden though. I can't. Where, where where do you fall on that? No, you summed it up beautifully for kind of where my, my head is at here that he had every opportunity on his own to find a new, new home by opting out and not taking the money and becoming a free agent. He had every opportunity to uh, you know, handle this in, in a little bit better of a way. And as soon as you opt in, your contract is in some regard viewed as an asset that the team has to maximize, whether that's yeah. with what you bring to the table as a member of the team or fair value that you would return for your asset and its market value in a trade elsewhere. I think of it this way. As a player, sometimes you can't always get three things championship level team and environment, the contract maximization and the most money that you want and a situation that's really comfortable for you. You can't always get all three of those things. And sometimes at different stages of your career, you have to sacrifice one in order to get the other. We've seen so many guys sacrifice the payday in order to go take a smaller contract for a championship team. We've seen other guys do the exact opposite and chase the bag, which all power to them. Go chase that bag if that's your priority above going and playing for an established contender at that point in time. I don't think there's anything wrong with either way. 
But when you try to split the needle and have it all three ways, the way that James Harden has done here, opt into this contract to get the last really big, like one year payday he's guaranteed to have, and then try to steer himself to a specific team for a contender. That, that that's really tough for me. It's really tough. Well, in the original sin here from Harden probably is taking this two year deal from Philadelphia, yeah. right? Uh, assuming that you know, he would opt out and Philly would take care of him on the back end, right? Well, he had a good year. I thought he was pretty underrated, uh, especially in like the middle third of the season. I thought I thought he was awesome in the middle third of the season. But then you look at the playoffs and it was not ideal. James Harden shot under 40% in the playoffs for the first time since 2014. Uh you know, he averaged 20 points and three turnovers and eight assists. His numbers went down across the board. I, I get it why Philly wasn't exactly rushing to go give this guy the long-term deal that James Harden, like, believes that he deserves. And, and you know, Barry Johnson, I think, in the YouTube comments brings up a good point. I'd like to know the details of the conversation between Harden and Maury before Harden accepted the option. Either there was a misunderstanding or Maury is reneging. I don't think so. I think that there could have been a conversation that said, look, here's the thing. I don't know if James Harden gets $35 million on the free agency market this offseason from a good team. He might've been able to get it from somewhere else, but I don't know the team that was out there that was going to give this to him that immediately becomes a title contender. So I get why he did it, but ultimately I think that the problem here is that Harden, like Adam said, is kind of trying to have his cake and eating it too where he wants the money and also wants the contending situation. And I get why he wants that. But then this is, this is why to me, this was kind of a mistake to opt in. If you really wanted to get out because Harden in his representation should have examined the trade market ahead of time and understood There is not a deal that makes sense for Philadelphia to actually accomplish it. Daryl Morey can go into that conversation with Harden and say, yes, we will absolutely go out and look at every single available option in a trade. We will try and figure out exactly what works for you and what works for us. And at the end of the day, you know, if, if there isn't a DeMar DeRozan for James Harden deal on the table from Chicago and the Clippers can't rope in a third team to make this work in one way or another involving, you know, multiple teams. And once you start involving three and four teams, these trades get super complicated and they get super easy to break down. Daryl Morey can go back to James Harden and his representation and say, James, we tried, like we genuinely made an effort to try to make something like this work. And it's just not there. So what, What do you do then? I mean, now you're in the standoff. And, and that's why to me, like, I just wonder if this was like a total miscalculation on Harden and his representations uh, part here where they needed to know ahead of time if he really didn't want to be in Philly. And it seemed like he really didn't want to be in Philly. 
he probably should have just opted out and taken less to go somewhere else at the end of the day. And I'm not saying that like that is something that James Harden, you know, deserves. Like, I don't think he deserves less than 35 million. It's probably about right in terms of what he should be making, you know, $35 million next year, assuming like a little bit of a drop off, everything like that. Given the fact that he's 34 at this point, given what his level was last year, the number is probably about right in terms of what he's worth. It's just that if he really didn't want to be there, he needed to make that calculation early. And it leaves Philly, by the way, in a disaster situation if he makes that calculation anyway. So, like, it's it's a problem regardless. But Philly then would probably have gone about trying to negotiate a sign-in trade, and I think a sign-in trade gets a little bit easier for them. uh, Or it it puts the pressure on them, maybe is a better way to put it, uh, in a way that this situation doesn't. Like now, now Maury can take him. Now Maury has the leverage of his contract where if he sits out for more than 30 days, uh, the contract just rolls over if I remember correctly. So it's, it's a bad, it's a bad spot now for Harden. It's obviously a terrible spot for Philly. It it just seemed all avoidable to me at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it very much did. And again, you mentioned it at the top, the last thing that this can produce from a Sixers standpoint is harsh feelings from Joel Embiid towards the organization in either feeling that there was something mismanaged or that they're not going to be able to find the right level of all-star caliber talent to keep the Sixers atop the East if and when James Harden is moved on from. Like that is the the yeah. part of the leverage that is baked into Harden thinking he can do some of this stuff is he he gets a feeling that Philly has to be urgent in this to keep Joel Embiid happy. And that's a that's a really tough place for every party to be in. And look, again, you know, you could say it's not a miscalculation by Harden's people because you could say they still hold more leverage, I think, here than Philly does, unfortunately. That's the reality of the way the NBA works now because Philly is in a terrible spot if they lose Harden for very little. But the problem is that, like, Daryl Morey won't blink. Like, he kind of have to, like, you know, KYP, know your personnel, like know know the opposition here, right? Like you got, you got to know your own personnel in terms of who you're dealing with with Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey is not going to, he's not going to do something that makes this worse. He's going to make this more difficult than other GMs would maybe is a way to put it. And rightfully so. Like I'm not saying that's a bad thing for Morey. It's just the reality of who he is who he has proven to be throughout his general managerial career. And now we're at a point where unfortunately James Harden's legacy is that this is a piece of James Harden's uh, career and who he is, is that three teams now he's basically asked out of from 2020 onward. And it's a bummer. Uh, he's he's uh, he's a player that, from a talent perspective, I think as a case is like one of the ten best offensive players of all time. And I, if his career was to end today, I don't think he would be remembered nearly that fondly. He'll be a Hall of Famer. He'll be someone that gets an immense amount of respect as people look back on his career. But this is a big piece of his career now, and that is disappointing. And he needs to 
And maybe he doesn't care and that's fine. That's, that's his choice. Ultimately, how you're remembered is your, your choice. And if you care, if you don't care, that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's all so complicated here. A complicated relationship between Daryl Morey and James Harden over the last decade or so. Yeah. Uh, there's, there are a lot of factors that go into it, but uh, for everybody's sake, like I, I wish it would never come to this. I hope that it can get resolved sometime in the next couple of months so it doesn't bleed over into the regular season and cost the 76ers games or just be a, a continued distraction of them moving forward. But uh, this is something the NBA, in some regard, has to take a look at. We're, we are seeing year so after too. year the uh, the implications of stars trying to hold teams hostage in some regard and, and drive themselves to the situations that they want to be in. And it's it's not a good look for anybody. I think that's right. This offseason, I think, has been enough of an eye-opener, I hope, for owners that they need to come up with an answer on this in some respect. And honestly, like it doesn't reflect well on the players at the end of the day. I get that. Like, you know, if you're in the players association and like your leadership in the players association, this probably represents a real mechanism for you in order to try and get what you want uh, as a player, but it, it doesn't reflect well on the players when this happens. Right. Like it, it just doesn't. So I would hope that, they take a look at this and they try and figure out a way to stop, stop something like this uh, and stop something like Damian Lillard, you know, forcing his way to one location kind of thing. Uh, I think the player should have some sort of recourse in this manner. Sure. Uh, sitting out, I think is, you know, sometimes can be reasonable in some respect, I guess it, it's, this this stuff though is complicated and i think yeah. that the league would do well to look at it and i think the league would do well to try and figure out how to manage these situations moving forward totally agree okay let's take a quick break we're going to get to cooper flag now and talk about cooper flags reclassification the potential number one pick now in the 2025 nba draft Okay, Adam, we're back. We're going to talk Cooper Flag now. Talking right. Cooper Flag. We have not. We've talked a little bit about Cooper Flag on this show. We allude to him, I think, regularly on this podcast, and don't often go all that in depth on him. Maybe is a way to put it. Right. One of those things that we've alluded to over the course of our time is the fact that Cooper Flag is a player that in all likelihood logically will reclassify for yeah. the 2024 recruiting class and then enter the 2025 draft. The reason for that is obvious. He is very clearly the number one player in high school basketball with apologies to AJ DeBonsa apologies to Cam Boozer. I think Cooper is number one. I think Cooper's the guy right now. Yeah. Uh, all of these guys are really great. There isn't really anybody in 2024 that I'm nearly as excited about as those players. Unlike those players, Cooper Flagg, by reclassifying, can get eligible 
for the 2025 NBA draft by virtue of being born in 2006. That left this as a very obvious decision to me for Cooper. Cooper needed to ultimately reclassify at the end of the day. He immediately becomes the number one player in the class of 2024. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Adam, I... So you wrote about Cooper Flag before this reclassification decision happened. Hilariously, you picked a great time to do this. You did, did a long video on him. Yeah. Explain to the people why Cooper Flag is so good. Yeah, I got really lucky here. You said you know it was a, a matter of time before he kind of made this reclassification decision. Uh, I'm glad that he chose to do it 12 hours after I released this video, so everybody from Google got to see my stuff. So thank you, Cooper, in that regard. Uh, look, he quite frankly, was so dominant on both ends of the floor that he straddled the line between being the biggest competitor on the floor at all times and having that drive his two-way production while also just not looking challenged while he was out there. And I think moving up uh, a year earlier into this process is only going to challenge him a little bit more. Uh, This was an eye-opening summer for him and and even back to the spring with his AAU season for the 16U uh, Maine United team. He averaged 26 and a half points, 11 and a half rebounds, almost five assists and almost five blocks a game. And the, the dominance that he shows on both ends of the floor to carry that large of a, an offensive role while also being a, a dominant rim protector and defender who helped that main team be you know, one of the better ones that we saw during the EYBL this season, and, and here's a stat that'll kind of blow your mind. In the half court, opposing teams shot 40.5% at the rim against that main team. And that is, that's dominance due to what type of defender Cooper Flag is. 6'10 and mobile who can switch onto the perimeter, but an unbelievable shop blocker whose explosiveness and vision and just presence changes and alters the way that other people try to score on him around the basket. But his competitive instincts are what are off the charts and what really fuel him to never have a bad game. And and that's really what it is for me. It's the consistency with which he plays. He'll, He'll have triple doubles where he's got 10 blocks but he is a factor on the defensive end of the floor every single game. He he is one of the best high school prospects that I've evaluated on the defensive end of the floor and probably far and away the best 16-year-old I've evaluated. So t- two things really stand out there in terms of when I watch Cooper, what just like immediately pops among the non-traditional athletic traits. Because look, like Cooper is not – like the highest leaper and he is not uh, the fastest guy out there. Two things I think fuel him being, I agree with you. The best defensive prospect is a 16 year old. I've seen personally, his hand eye coordination is unbelievable. His hand eye coordination is unlike anything I have seen Uh, his sense of timing, his ability to get his hands uh, on the ball, both in passing lanes and just trying to rip guys. He has quick hands and he has very coordinated hands. Uh, it's very fluid. It's very, very difficult. Uh, he's very disruptive in the way he goes about trying to uh, manage any situation as a shot contester, as a uh, guy guarding on the perimeter. His hand work is incredible. Second, he gets off the floor incredibly quickly. So, so uh, quickly. 
one thing that uh, the folks at P3 uh, over in Santa Barbara, the sports science facility, one thing that they measure is how quickly you get to a certain height, right? Uh, not how high you get, but like how fast do you get to say 11 feet is a leaper, okay. right? Uh, or I, I forget what the exact measurement is. Like how quickly do you get there? And that's something that if you look at Nikola Jokic's athleticism, particularly, obviously he does not leap high, but he gets to a certain point very quickly. He gets off the ground a lot quicker than what he gets credit for. He's not like elite of the elite in that regard or anything, but it, it, it really stands out in comparison to his other athletic traits. Right. It's athleticism meets reactivity. Yes. Cooper flag has a very similar trait. In my opinion, I've not seen this get measured or anything. I haven't seen it, you know, in any way tested, but he gets off the floor incredibly quickly and gets to a certain height incredibly quickly, which allows him to play beyond his athletic traits. In my opinion, uh, and Cooper Flag's a good athlete. I don't mean to like yeah, denigrate good. how good of an athlete he is. He's like a legitimate, like real athlete. He's very coordinated. He is fairly explosive. Like he's not like, you know, we're going to talk about Flory Badunga here after Cooper Flag. Flory is like wildly explosive, yeah. like in a lot of different ways. Cooper's not that. But Cooper, in terms of his instincts and his reactivity is unbelievable. His timing, blocking shots and contesting shots is unbelievable. Uh, like Adam said, he's extremely switchable. It has to start with the defense because I've never seen somebody that is this productive on the defensive end. Point blank. I have never seen somebody this young that is this productive. Uh, you go back and you watch, what was it? The U16s where he's playing, I think it's a 14-year-old, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, and he played against Spain and it was just like, he completely took over the game. He yeah. completely, in every single capacity, took over that game in a way that I, I have not seen a player that is that young do defensively in a long, long time. He had like eight steals. He had like six blocks. I, I, I forget what the number is. He came very close to having like a quadruple double yeah. with like 18 rebounds or something like that in the gold medal match. It, it, was, it was truly special. He, he is a truly unique yeah. defensive prospect. Uh, that I have never really seen before. Offensively, w- what do you think of him? Because we did not really talk about that side of it yet. Yeah, and look, the, the defensive stuff is so Im- impressive, and the last thing I'll say on that, because I think his basketball IQ is off the charts in that regard, too. The ability to track the ball in a lot of different areas. He doesn't leave his feet pre- like preemptively, you mentioned, because he is such a quick leaper in some regards. He doesn't need to go out there and, you know, bite on pump fakes. Like he stays down most of the time. Uh, guys who average five blocks a game are going to get accused of stat padding and chasing blocks. And like he does hunt them down from the weak side, but he is not out there making all of these crazy risky plays and leaving guys open underneath the basket. Like he is simultaneously able to do a little bit of everything on the defensive end of the floor in terms of blocking shots from the weak side while also not giving up anything that he leaves behind. He's sensational defensively on the offensive end, as you asked, I don't know if I've seen as impressive of a one year trajectory and growth uh, pathway that he's been on this past year, like 
it's insane what he has turned into as a, a self-creation guy and a jump shooter and the confidence at which he takes these shots with now. Because that wasn't really the, the biggest part of his game when he was a little bit younger. But now, man, is this guy comfortable just shooting over the top of smaller defenders. Uh, really loves spin moves in different ways to be able to get to his spots. Like, Yes, he is a, a pretty good athlete and a, a really violent dunker and finisher near the rim. But the, the complementary traits to his game on the perimeter have really started to come around. The jump shot's starting to fall. It's not the highest percentage number that you would look, but he's a guy facing double teams most of the time. So he's either shooting over the top of some really good defenses and defenders, or he catches the ball in the low post, and he's got to facilitate for others. I think he's a willing passer. I think he's got good vision. His handle in the full court as a rebound and run guy is really creative. Yeah. Tons of behind-the-back stuff. Like he, He's a very fun but functional player in all of the ways that he can score, put pressure on the rim, and now start to stretch defenses out. What, what I'm so in, enthused by, Sam, I still see areas for him to improve. Like He's going to get better as a jump shooter. His handle is going to tighten in different ways. I think he's a little upright. As an athlete right now, he's got to keep working on playing lower and getting in a stance. He tends to hunch at his waist instead of bending and, and kind of squatting his hips back a little bit more. That comes up when he's trying to really drive through traffic, but he's strong. He's got touch with either hand. He's got moves and counter moves that make sense that he has repped in a real way. And it, if he can reliably be a self-creation jump shot guy in the way that he's shown he has the potential to be the last couple of months – like this is a two-way dominant force, two-way yeah. dominant force. I think what has really improved to me is just the functionality of the handle. Yeah, like to be able to get into those pull-up jumpers. The three-point shot like needs to come along, like undeniably. Like that's that's the biggest thing for me right now. But getting to those mid-range jumpers right now is pretty sick for him. Like he can get to that. Almost any time it feels like, plus he has the elevation and the release point on the jumper that you look for uh, in those settings to be able to be translatable and transferable to the next levels. Uh, he's unselfish. He makes high level passing reads and he did all of this while playing uh, on a main AAU team. Like he decided to stay loyal to his boys and to his friends. He wants to get all those guys like scholarship offers is kind of what I was told. Like he wants to, help all his boys like it's uh you know trying to trying to help them get to the next level with him in some way he wants to take people with him and that's commendable i think that's as a awesome. player it's awesome it's an, it makes him an awesome awesome dude like the kind of person you want to have around for sure highly competitive uh loyal to his dudes like it, it's everything you want and the the next question here for me is just like what does he do uh I think the pro route is completely viable for him. I think the college route is completely viable for him. I, I guess that like there is a world where he might go, might not go number one in 25. Like I always try and like figure out weird avenues where this could change or falter based on like decisions that players make. Right. It seems like he is really smart in turn and like he has like good people around him yeah, in terms of yeah, in terms of decision making. So I don't think that there would be a bad like I don't think he would make a bad college decision. Like I, I don't expect him to end up like going to play in like a two three zone and like a terrible situation like that, right? 
but I, I do think that he's like very clearly the number one guy. Like I, I, I wouldn't even consider anybody else in that class right now, right they, now. Like, look, get, guys might get better. Right. We're two years away from that draft still. We still have so much time, but like, I don't really think that anybody's really in his ballpark right now in that 24 class. All due respect, Dylan Harper, Ace Bailey, Trey Johnson, I guess. Uh, I, I really like VJ Edgecombe mm-hmm. is one name that I think is like way, way, way underranked on recruiting services right now. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I don't see anybody really getting into the, into the mix right now. Uh, maybe somebody will earn their way into that, but where do you stand on what Cooper flag should do next? I don't think there's really a wrong decision to make here because he's such a transformative player in any type of environment he's going to be in, like go somewhere. You're going to be challenged from a, uh, a competition competition standpoint, not just the, the teams that you play against, but the players in practice, make sure there's enough talent around you to guard you, to make you better, to push you on things trust the coaching staff and you know again I I think you got to go to a place that's not going to be as you said married to like a two three zone or hey this is our system and what we do like a transformative player who can elevate everyone around you and fit in so many different ways I just love Cooper Flack I love his game I love his demeanor I, I love the competitiveness he brings with him on both ends of the floor like that guy plays a full game on both ends. I'll, I'll just yep. kind of end my thing on, on this. There was one game when they went to overtime in the AAU circuit this summer. And he is at half court taking the jump ball to start overtime and kind of tips it behind him. But uh, a player on the other team knifes in, grabs the ball, and is going to go for a layup. And he swats it out of bounds. He goes from mm-hmm. half court to the rim to protect that basket in two seconds. It was one of the most absurd things I've seen in in my 10 years of watching AAU basketball now. He's absurd. He's truly absurd. The schools that I've seen associated most, uh, I know that Duke is like considered the one that is uh, most clearly uh, associated, I guess is a way to put it, with Cooper Flagg. I do know that college coaches – mentioned to me that like Connecticut was at all of his games this summer and seems to be trying to get in there. I know that Kansas seemingly based on public reports uh, is one that uh, certainly is there, I guess. Uh, And look like all the biggest schools, all the biggest universities will get in the mix here. Like there's no, no denying it. And the ignite will try and get in the mix. I would imagine the NBL will make calls. Like he would come over here and he'd be unbelievable from day one in the NBL. It'd be hilarious. He'd be so good in the NBL. If I was an NBL team, I'd be calling and trying to get him over here next year. Like for this coming year that starts in a month at the NBL blitz, I'd be like, please Cooper, like come join. You have a chance to win like all league honors from day one in the NBL. That's how good he is. Uh, and I truly believe that, especially uh, the position he plays. Like every NBL team here is looking for these like three, four hybrid types that can defend and shoot and do all that mm-hmm. stuff. Cooper Flag would be awesome here. Um, yeah, in terms of what's the best option for him, honestly, I think it's like I would love to see him go to Connecticut personally because I think Connecticut now has at least somewhat of a proven 
after this season record of playing well-spaced offense uh, around guys like this and letting him create. I think that Duke under John Shire, we're going to get another year before Cooper has to make a decision seemingly on what that offense looks like. I think I liked a lot of what I saw from Shire last year, personally, in terms of queuing up things at the right time, being reactive to what's happening around him. I think John Shire is going to be a really good coach. I just, if I was this elite of a prospect with this much riding on my decision, I would want to see a little bit more evidence maybe like, and would want to know what it looks like before I commit in say March, if Duke is my favorite option. Um, you know, and Kansas would be great. Bill Self's unbelievable, right? Go to Kansas. Like, you're never going to hear me uh, argue against going to Kansas because Bill Self knows how to make situations work around great players at a really high level because he is so awesome in terms of scheme and creating and cultivating a scheme and being reactive within game as the best in-game coach in college basketball. Um, the last option there would be the Ignite, though, and you and I on a recent episode talked about the ignite. Yeah. And I, I would really, if I was going to commit to the ignite, if I was Cooper flag, I would really want to see what this year looks like. Yeah. I, I would not be committing to the ignite right now. I would wait until January, see the kind of offense they play, see if they show real improvement in terms of, actualizing the players that are on the court. Cause I think, you know, as we went through what three of the 12 guys they've had have improved their stock or stayed steady. It seems like a situation where there's more downside with the ignite than what maybe has been indicated. And with NIL now you can go get paid in college and all of these schools will pay as much as the ignite are paying for Cooper flag, like unquestionably. So yeah, I, I, that's kind of where I stand on it. Like I I think Duke and Connecticut are both really interesting options and I would like to see, uh, I'd like to see him in either of those spots. I think it would work. I'd love to see him at Duke. Uh, That's me being a a lifelong Duke fan. Uh, just kind of throwing that out there. I would have loved to see him here at Boys Latin too, but uh, didn't work out. So, uh, yeah. you know, look, he's going to be successful wherever he ends up. I just, I have fallen in love with him as a player and a prospect, and it's easy to see why. He's a dominant defender who carries a high volume on offense and can do so many different things. Uh, easy player to love. Okay, last topic here. Flory Badunga, the number one center in the 2024 recruiting class, committed to Kansas over the weekend. Adam, any thoughts on Flory Badunga to Kansas? You know, I am actually glad to see the the old feeling in my memory that I always have of the Jayhawks just having dominant big man after dominant big man after dominant. <laughs> and it, it, it like feels like we've gotten yeah. away from that a little bit in the last couple of years. Uh, and I think, I think Badunga is going to be great there. I always think that the big 12 is an unbelievable proving ground for, for tough big men, because you, you tend to have some really good ones that play that are seasoned in that conference. And a lot of coaches who know different ways to try to attack you. So uh, I, I really like this for, for Badunga in terms of a, a, a fit standpoint, but I'm curious to know a little bit more about like your eval from a, a skill perspective, because to me, that's, that's a little bit different. Like he's a monster athlete can do so many different things in that yeah. regard. 
But at some point, your skill levels got to be on par, if not exceed your athleticism, if you're going to make it at a, at a higher level than just at college. So where, what have you yeah. seen from a skill standpoint? And, and that's why I'm like a little bit confused as to why he is like been anointed as the very clear number one center in that class. Like, I really, really like Badunga. Like, I do not mean to uh, denigrate him, especially as a college prospect. Like, he's going to be yeah. awesome in college, I think. Uh you know, six, eight, six, nine, something like that. Really long arms, monster athlete. I mean, has the coordination and the explosiveness. Both of them are there. And the way you've seen him uh, work on that skill set mostly is through improving his handle, right? Uh, I think that his handle has been the thing that has gotten scouts like a little bit excited. The fact that like he can face up drive from beyond the three point line and like show flashes of getting to the rim at like a pretty reasonable level. Obviously when he gets to the rim, like on lobs and everything, like he finishes at a really, you know, really, really high level, like 80% or so according to synergy. But it's, it's some of the shot creation stuff there that has gotten scouts a bit excited uh, off the bounce. I don't really know how functional that is right now. Yeah. And I think that I, I don't know how functional any of it is on offense for him as a shot creator right now. Like I, I kind of think that he's like a high motor, great athlete, great defensive prospect who can switch and can protect the rim and do a number of different things. I don't love the shot at all. Yeah. Like I don't think he can shoot. No. I don't think he can pass. Like I've never really seen the passing flashes from him uh, in any level. He, he kind of just feels like one of those guys that's like so much longer and athletic and uh, bigger than the guys he's playing a lot of the time, like on the Adidas circuit that he's just like totally dominant there. And I, I don't know how it's going to work uh, beyond that is kind of my point. Like, do you, yeah. I hear do you, you. How do you feel about that? Because like, 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 okay. So like, full transparency. Like, I would probably rather have Derek Queen than Jordan. Ooh, ooh. that's an interesting one for me. It, totally com- different players. Com- like, it's, totally. It's, it's completely like the, the scheme you want to play and like everything you want to do. Like, you can. I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong answer yeah. there, but like me personally, like. Derek Queen's passing ability and touch and and everything like that. Like, I'm just like, oh my God, this guy's unbelievable. I love the fact that he's gotten into much better shape seemingly over the course of this summer. Uh, When I've seen him, like I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in Derek Queen personally than him. And I've, I've watched a lot of Derek Queen uh, and and that's kind of the difference for me. Like college game. I think I definitely would take Queen. Uh, I think that he's the type of guy that you throw the ball to on the block and he's going to create good things nine times out of 10. He's become a really functional defender. He just, he's a quick processor, but a fun player in transition too. I, I think the transformation in his body deserves a lot of credit. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I watched a lot of Derek Queen this year. We had a, one of our guys be his AAU teammates. So uh, always fun to be able to tune in and, and watch that. But it's the passing. Like it's, the pat- it's what it is. Derek Queen's pat like he will throw like these insane cross corner kicks. He'll throw these insane like behind the back looks, and you're just yeah. like, oh no, like guys that are six foot nine that are like post bigs, they don't do this. You know what I mean? 
it's the skill level that is just like so yep. exceptionally real every time I watch Dare Queen. Look, I, I get it if you want to have Dunga ahead of him. Like, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, but, like, I, the fact that Badunga has become this, like, oh, this is definitely the guy in that class among the centers is a little bit weird to me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I um, like I like Queen a lot. Again, I, I think pro potential-wise, like, I don't know where I would come down on the two of them just because I yeah. think Queen's – a little undersized. Like I, I just want to continue to see more in that room. Badugan's a little undersized, I guess, in that regard, but he's long and explosive in ways that make up for it. Well, and the guy that's like in the middle of them that I would have, frankly, ahead of both of them in terms of NBA, like long-term upside is Jaden Quaintance in that class. Beast. Yeah. He's, beast. he's so good. Like yeah. has the skill level, has the ability to handle a little bit. Six, nine, two twenty-five, like, you see it all. And I believe he's younger than both of them. Like don't quote me on that, but he's got to be younger than both of them based on the fact that he reclassified up essentially like two age groups uh, to be in the 2024 class. Look, the first year with acquaintance in college, like it might take a year, but that dude long-term I think has more upside than both of them in terms of skill level, shot creation, uh, the size, everything that comes with it. Uh, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Yeah. yeah, that's that'll be an interesting group to watch. And then there's, uh, you know, another Montford guy there. What, Aza Newell? Aza Newell? Yeah. N- another yep, another yep, interesting, yep. like, front court prospect to watch. Really good defender, versatile type of guy on that end of the floor. Really disruptive. These guys will all be fascinating to see how they continue to toggle with each other in recruiting rankings, how they fare when they get to college, and then whose game kind of translates best to the NBA. I think there are a lot of good bigs in that class. Yeah, and where Newell's really interesting is on the defensive end, like as a shot blocker and every like he, his sense of timing and like yeah. rotational awareness is incredible. Mo- on that motor end. is strong, yeah. Motor is strong again, like a guy that I still want to see a little bit more of the skill level stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, it's, it's like Badunga to me is like in their group. Like he's not right. like far and away the guy to me. Right. Um, right. But he's a great five star prospect. Kansas should be pumped. The thing I will note on Kansas here is Hunter Dickinson has a year of eligibility after this. And Hunter Dickinson is probably making more at Kansas than he will playing professional basketball. Do you have a sense of how you feel Badunga and Dickinson, along with KJ Adams, by the way, who has another couple of years of eligibility, would all morph in that front court mix? I think it could work defensively. I don't know about it offensively, though. That's yeah. if there's any coach that could make it work, it would be self. But I don't know. Just first glance, like that, almost feels like a Oscar Shebway situation from this year, where like you've got a great, productive upperclassman big man, but you got this big recruit coming in behind him. What do you end up doing? I don't know. I'm really interested to see what that looks like. I think there's a world where. Badunga and Dickinson work really well. Uh, the guy I feel a little bit bad for is Zach Clemens. Like if I was Zach Clemens, yeah. I probably would have like transferred out uh, this summer. He considered it. I think he was he committed to UC Santa Barbara at one point, if I remember correctly. I, I think he was. Yeah. Um, and then decided to go back to Kansas at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, I just don't know how he ever gets playing time on this team again. But 
Kansas setting up a really interesting 2024-25 with Johnny Furphy there, probably one of our El Marco Jackson or Arterio Morris, depending on which one like really blows up. You would think Dewan Harris will be there. Again, going to be an awesome team. KJ Adams is probably still there, you would think. Hunter Dickinson probably still there uh, based on just logic of money, right? Uh again, we'll probably be the number one team in 2024-25 based off of, like, I feel okay saying that based off of what we see um, set up for this roster. Yeah, I mean, I think Dickinson and Badunga can really work together. I don't think that KJ Adams and Badunga can really work all that well together unless KJ drastically improves. But the, the other thing is that I've heard this recruitment was like a totally wild ride. Uh, like across the board, like I heard our Auburn was in late. Yeah. I heard that like Duke was very in early and then like Kansas, like it took like Kansas, Kansas was on a ride in this recruitment. They ended up winning at the end of the day. Like, I, you know, we'll see, we'll see where this ends up going. Uh, yeah. But I'm fascinated to fascinated to learn more about what Kansas's plans are for 24-25 after they're going to enter this season, I think, is like the undeniable number one team yeah. in college basketball, uh, just with everything they have in the backcourt, on the wing, in the front court, everything. Okay, we asked for questions in the comments. Please, we're going to answer probably 10 minutes of questions here, mailbag style. Uh, so please... Ask some questions and we will answer them. From Francis Kozak, is Cooper potentially a better prospect than Wemby, assuming marginal growth each year prior to 2025? I'll ask you that. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Like, but, do you but, if you want me to answer it first, I got I it. Will, I got yeah. it. I got it. Potentially, I think is the, the key word that I would underline there. Um, look, I tend to think that the changes in physics that happen because of Victor Wembanyama's size is just a little bit more that Cooper flag can't necessarily account for. Uh, but if he is a better and more consistent shooter that is developed at that point in time, I could see an argument being made for it. Yeah. Okay. And then I think I would answer that as he is one of the few players that I think could have a reasonable case to, by the end of his prospectdom as he enters the NBA draft could be in that mix to be better than Wembenyama. I think it's probably unlikely. Yeah. Uh, just to be honest, I think the leap that Wembenyama took this year, like you mentioned that like Cooper's year over year growth offensively was better than anything you've seen from somebody. Uh, I actually think Wembenyama's from, uh, his year at Osvell to the year this year with Metropolitans was even bigger than Cooper's offensive growth this year. Uh, the level of leap he took from 18 to 19, Vic, or from really 17 to 18, and then going into turning 19 in his pre-draft year, uh, I think is kind of unmatched offensively for somebody that is 7-4, just in terms of handle and in terms of shot creation and everything. So... To me, unlikely, but Cooper is one of the few that if he becomes like an unbelievable shot creator, I would very much be willing to entertain that conversation, if only due to injury risk with Wembenyama on some level, right? Seven foot four guys, you know, that have had injuries throughout the course of their career. You just never know. Okay. 
From Brian K, what's up with Hamadou Diallo? I thought he would be picked up by now. I'm a little bit surprised that he's not picked up. Uh, you know, I think he's worth a guaranteed contract from somebody that just needs athletic wing depth. The shooting is a real problem, though, and it's hard to play him in playoff settings because of it. I I think he's an NBA player talent-wise, though, and hopefully someone does pick him up. Yeah, uh, no strong thoughts on my end. Like, good player, um, but not great enough, and particularly great enough as an off-ball offensive player to the point where I'm totally shocked he's not on a roster. But I think he deserves to be on one, no doubt. I think that's where I'm at, too. Like, you know, it's not always about deserves, right? Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes there's different stuff. But I will say, like, he was very highly rated the last two years in Detroit defensively uh, in terms of any sort of metric that you look at. Uh, like EPM right now has him as like a plus 2.7 defender, which is the 99th percentile uh, on defense. And then the year before they had him as a plus two defender, which is the 93rd percentile defensively. Uh, and that was on two very bad yeah, teams Detroit. that probably, probably masked how good he got defensively a little bit uh, in Detroit was also a little bit more efficient last year. You know, he had a 60% true shooting percentage, mostly because he, essentially stopped taking threes and uh, you know, generally was just much more efficient at the rim in terms of decision-making look there there's, there's enough there for him only turning 25 years old, like having yep. turned 25 years old this summer to where I would probably sign him and take a shot on it. As long as the expectation is not wildly high. Yeah, I mean, how many – you and I did an exercise a week or so ago where we were talking about some redraft players and trying to figure out what does or does not work in highly touted prospects. Like, we kind of came to the conclusion that a lot of these defense-first, non-elite shooting guards who are like 6'4 to 6'5-ish kind of get squeezed sometimes in the league, that there's maybe mm-hmm. too many of them or, or not as much of a role to house it multiple of them on the same roster. So a guy who's talented and has produced on the defensive end like Diallo without being able to take comfortable catch and shoot threes, like the market just shrinks. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, From YouTube user, which I'm assuming is just like a masked account. Uh, When does OKC finally turn all their talent and picks into a star to put next to Shea Gilgis Alexander? Look, in terms, uh, in terms of the way that their salary cap sheet is laid out and structured, it probably has to be in the next 18 months. I just don't know that it involves them trading one of like Giddy, Jalen Williams, Chet Holmgren, or Shea. Like, I, I think that they can probably get a deal done without having to move one of those guys, which sounds crazy on its face. I'm aware of that. But they have so many picks and so many assets that they probably don't need to do it. And it's not just that Sam, but I think we're still early enough into all of their careers that one or two of them could turn into that type of star. Anyway, that a huge year from Chet or from Jalen, not only kind of accomplishes that box without needing to sell those assets, but keeps the timeline very much in sync with the young core that they've already developed. Like, I'm not ready to say that they need to look elsewhere in order to find that star. I think that they've got another year of exploring if they can find that star from within. 
I think that's right. Uh, an interesting comment here from Gaelic Elander says, when will folks recognize that if the Thunder trade for a star, they will not be able to keep the roster together long-term? Uh, Giddy, J-Dub, Chet, all very likely to sign lucrative second contracts. I think that is a big piece of why you probably should wait a little bit uh, before. And I think they were smart to not go all in on a star this summer, particularly. Having said that, you know, what when these deals come up, essentially, will be, you know, 2025, 26, because that's the year that Chet and Jalen Williams will, like their contracts will start, right? That 2026, 27 year, which is when they will start, Shea's deal is currently slated to be 23.7% of the salary cap, which is markedly low for a player as good as he is. Uh, Chet Holmgren, let's say he signs for 25%. Uh, let's say Josh Giddy is on 26% of the cap at that point. And you know, Jalen Williams is on 25%. Let's say that the best case scenario happens and that they're all worthy max level players, right? Will you look at, you know, what the Denver Nuggets have slated for their roster this year, right? You know, that would essentially be like right around 100% of your cap in Oklahoma City's case for four players, right? Well, Denver right now is Nikola Jokic slated at 35%, Jamal Murray at 25%. Michael Porter at 25% and Aaron Gordon at 16%. Your top four players there are basically exactly the same. Yep. It's kind of what it costs to win a title uh, in the NBA today. Uh, unless you have like an overwhelming single superstar, you look at the Milwaukee Bucks, right? In terms of what they're slated for. And again, I'm picking these two teams because they are not enormous markets necessarily for the NBA. They are you know, smaller to medium-sized markets, much like Oklahoma City is, right? Giannis Antetokounmpo, 33.6%. Drew Holiday, 27%. Chris Middleton, 21%. Brooke Lopez, 18.4%. Uh, you know, Middleton and Lopez at 40. Drew Holiday and Giannis at 60. That's about 100%. Having 100% of your cap tied up in four guys is pretty normal for a contender at the end of the day. So if the best case scenario happens and all four of those guys are max players, great. That's fantastic. Gaelic's point there was like trading for another star on top of that would make it very difficult to keep all of those guys. That is where it would get really tricky, I think. But they have the money to where if all of Giddy, Williams, and Chet are max players, A, they're in the title mix as it is. If all four of those guys right. are max players right. by 2026, they're in the title mix every year, but B that that's kind of what it costs. Right. So, um, okay. JMG zero nine one one nine one UCLA under Mick Cronin has lost three transfers. Jake Kyber, Jake Kyman, Abramo Conca, and Mac Etienne, I think Kaiman left last year, to be honest. He was at Wyoming last year. Um, who are all on the fringes of the rotation, given how deep the Bruins are this season. How do you think Man- uh, Cronin manages the rotation? Uh, so they're sort of deep. I-, I think they have like eight, seven or eight guys, if I remember correctly. Like, you know, you have Jan Vide, Dylan Andrews, Will McClendon in the backcourt. You have uh, Fiblet and you have Lazar Stavanovich, who's like a floor spacer from Utah. 
you have Burke Buyachtenshell, and then you have Adem Bona and like uh, Ade Mara, right? So that's seven, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that's eight, right? And then you have Brandon Williams, whatever he is as a freshman. You have Devin Williams, whatever he is as a freshman. And then you have Kenny Wuba, who is your, you know, break glass in case of emergency big. I think the depth is fine to be on. Like, I, I think it's just going to eight, eight guys is kind of what you need. Nine guys is kind of what you need. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it, to me, it's more so about how the pieces fit together than it is trying to find an established depth. Like if I'm Mick Cronin and I ever plan on playing a day Mara and a Dembona together, like shooting, 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 you've got to be yeah. able to find that somewhere. So it's, and, and you're going to have to, by the way, like, I think that you're going to have to play both of those guys together. And they'll play zone, is my guess, on defense. And then they yeah. will uh, figure it out on offense with, like, some weird high-low stuff. Adem was, like, okay last year, like, running ball screens and running dribble handoffs and stuff. You you might be able to convince me that he can, like, run some weird, like, short-roll, high-low actions with Mara, right? I would – I mean – Yes, but I also think Mar is a fantastic high-low passer. Where I almost see it yeah. inverted, where Bone is the low post. Oh yeah, guy. you can do that for sure. Yeah, and, yeah. and Amara spends a lot of time towards the top of the key, flashing the the high post. Like they'll be they'll be able to be okay in getting those two to exist in the middle third of the floor. But if you've got guys standing on the wings in the corners who don't have to be guarded, and you slink yeah. into the lane from a help defensive standpoint, then that's when the high-low pairing kind of is going to struggle because Bona for as, as good as he can be is a little bit robotic. And I don't know if he's going to be able to figure all that stuff out on the fly. And it's weird because defensively you do need Bona on the court. I think unless you're going full zone all the time with Mara, <laughs> just trying to like block out the sun at the rim. But like you do want Bona on the court defensively anyway, but you know, Demara is such a good passer that you might be able to convince me that like you run some stuff through him and then you force the double on Demara. You know, does does Dembona like have good enough hands to consistently take advantage of if his guy's the one that's helping and Mara hits him just like in the dunker spot? Like, is he going to catch and finish consistently? I think so. I, I have no issue with that with Bona. It's just, is he going to be tagged preemptively when you head to a double team on Mara? Is there somebody who's just going to say, "Ah, eh, screw that guy standing around the three point line"? Like, I think Buyachtenshell's yeah. got to play the three a, a lot for this team. Like, that's the, oh, totally. The, that's the yeah. three man combination. It's Buyachtenshell, Bona, and Mara all together with the we'll call that the UN Summit lineup. And those guys, like, that's the best way to achieve and Jan Vidak and Young. My, I love, I love Jan Vidak. Can I just say that I love Jan Vidak? Yeah. Jan Vidak is really good. Jan Vidak is really, really good. And oh, by the way, uh, Elan Fible, like. Really good prospect. Like the, the shooting guard that they got from France, like legitimate potential NBA prospect that nobody is talking about because they have all of these other guys. So I, I'm very, very intrigued. Um, yeah, Evo has, uh, Evo Simovich has just internationalized UCLA and I love it. Uh, final question here. Can we get insight on your Bronny James ranking in the uh, on the big board? Uh, I'm assuming, or the mock draft that I did. I think I had Bronny at like 37 or so. I did not include anything to do with the heart condition. I had some can- or Kentucky fans that were mad at me about that. Like I had Bronny one spot ahead of Aaron Bradshaw. I mean, Aaron Bradshaw has like a pretty well-known like foot injury at this point. Bronny, there's just like a lot of question about what 
his situation is, in my opinion. And I, I didn't really feel comfortable even beginning to wade into those waters in terms of what his, you know, cardiac arrest uh, that he suffered in practice could result in. It, it just didn't feel like a good plan for me to wade into at that point. So I ranked him purely based off of talent, right? He right now is like a six foot two, three and D guy. And how many six foot two, three and D guys are there in the NBA that are that young? Not many, Sam. Yeah, like he he genuinely like kind of struggles to dribble and like create his own shot uh, at a level high enough, I think, to even like make a difference in college a lot of the time, let alone in the NBA. Bronny's like shooting and his defensive skill is very real. Like I'm, I'm in on what he can do in transition. I'm in on the athleticism. I'm in on uh, his defensive willingness to engage and his attitude seems awesome. That, that Mm -hmm. kid seems like an awesome human being having been around him, like in person for four or five days, whatever I was in Portland uh, seeing him practice and, you know, the media scrums and how polished he was seems like a great kid it's hard to be a six foot two, three and D guy in the NBA, especially at 19 years old, 20 years old, like he will be as a, as a rookie. Um, you know, maybe he goes higher because LeBron does genuinely want to play with him. You know, that, that feels like a real possibility that a team uses the 25th overall pick or wherever to take Bronny and try and convince LeBron to go there. Very plausible, but Based purely on the basketball side, I'm really interested in the player. I think it, he just really needs to improve the ball skill. Like truly, truly needs to improve the ball skill. I think he's a reasonable five-star player given how advanced he is as a defender and shooter. Uh, it's actually harder to find those guys in the high school ranks than what people yes. think. Yes. It's, and I think that he's going to translate to college basketball quite well. Honestly, if I was USC, I would kind of be assuming I'm bringing him off the bench because you have Isaiah Collier, Boogie Ellis, Kobe Johnson, and Kobe Johnson was a fantastic defender. I would imagine that Trey White kind of saw the writing on the wall. Trey White was like an all-pack 12-level defender last year, I thought. He was amazing on defense last year. Like a way, way underrated prospect, in my opinion, going to Louisville. Yes. And... You know, saw the brownie writing on the wall and like maybe he was not going to get as much playing time. We'll see what that happens there. But yeah, I mean, just a really, really interesting uh, situation at USC with Bronny. That's why I had him in the second, though. Um, I, I think he's a really, really interesting prospect that is a, a worthwhile discussion point as a one and done. I lean more toward he'd probably be a two and done if his father wasn't LeBron James, but like it's, he, he's someone you have to take very seriously in my opinion yeah. uh, as a yeah. prospect. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, love the role player fit, but <laughs> it's, it's hard to establish yourself as, as that type of one and done prospect. If you're playing that role already in college sometimes. Yeah, and like people will bring up Patrick Beverly or someone like that, right? Like Patrick Beverly had to go over to the freaking Ukraine yeah. and like didn't get to the NBA until he was 24, right? Yeah. Uh, people will bring up, I, I think Gary Harris is like a pretty popular name. Gary Harris had way more shot creation ability than what Bronny does right now. Um, 
Yeah. It, it's just like, they're a little bit different. Gary was a little bit bigger too. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think Bronny's like, and Gary took two years as well, by the way, uh, before he got to the NBA. So even if that is your point of comparison, and I don't think it's an unreasonable point of comparison, took Gary two years. So, yeah, that's kind of where I sit on all of this. Does that does that sound reasonable, Adam? Very much so. Okay, let's get out of here. Get this podcast done. I'm going to post the link to the next episode in the YouTube comments now. Uh, please. Go watch us. We're going to do a really, really fun exercise doing a 2024 expansion draft where Adam gets to lay out all the rules, <laughs> all the things that he has done. It's beautiful, guys. Seriously, what Adam has done here truly is special stuff. Uh, and he is just the absolute yeah. best. So I'm super excited to do this. It's going to be really fun. Come join us over at that link that is posted in the YouTube comments. It'll be a great time. We want it to be interactive. We want it to be fun. Uh, That will go up on the podcast feed sometime Tuesday uh, in the morning, mid-afternoon, something like that. So if you're a podcast listener, that's when that will go up. But I would direct all podcast listeners, we're doing this on Sunday night on YouTube. So if you want to go watch it, please, by all means, go watch it. But I've posted this link in YouTube. We're going to watch it. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work for this episode that's going on the podcast feed. Yeah, find me on Twitter, X, whatever it's called, at the box and one underscore or my Substack page, the box and one dot Substack dot com. My YouTube channel is just my name, Adam Spinella, but I would give a quick plug to watch the expansion draft over on YouTube. We'll have some graphics and things shared on screen. That'll be a really fun, interactive way to, to join on as well. That's exactly right. Go to the YouTube channel. Go subscribe there. It is really growing at a solid rate uh, that I'm pretty pleased with right now. So go watch us over there. We have a really good time. We talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, Go to The Athletic. Keep me employed over there. I'll probably have some stuff coming soon. Um, That's all I've got. Uh, Go watch the expansion draft. Go listen to it whenever it goes live on the podcast feed. Until next time, we'll talk soon.